Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're getting ready for the holidays with Rose Levy Berenbaum. She shares everything we need to know about baking cookies, from equipment to techniques to why her recipes come down to precision. Well, I weigh everything. In fact, my editor at Food Arts Magazine said, Rose weighs everything, even air. 
Before Rose's baking lesson, I'm talking with Gabriel Sanchez, a tour guide from Oaxaca, Mexico. Every year on December 23rd, his city celebrates the Night of the Radishes, an annual Christmas festival dedicated to radish carving. Gabrielle, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity. Before we actually get to the radishes, tell me a little bit about holidays in Oaxaca. There's a long tradition of celebrations and events. Just tell us a little bit about that. So we always say in Mexico that starting September, it's nonstop holidays because after our independence in September, Day of the Dead is October 31st uh, to celebrate the loved ones that have, you know, are not longer on this earth with us. And getting into the month of December, getting ready for this beautiful tradition that Francisco Vasconcelos, the city president, started on a December 23rd of 1897. That was the birth of the Night of the Radishes here in, in the city. And, and why radishes? The reason of radishes is because it's a very typical dish during that time of year. And obviously it goes with the Christmas colors, red and white. And, you know, a state governor, along with the city president, Francisco Bancocelos, they decided if there are so many radishes, why don't we just start harvesting radishes, make them bigger and have a competition for the local people to make different sculptures of the different traditions that we have in Oaxaca. Sometimes they want to recreate the Day of the Dead. Uh, sometimes they want to recreate a facade of a church. A Gelaguetza, which is another festivity that we have in Oaxaca. Sometimes they could be different animals that they want to carve related to our pre-Hispanic history. How big are these radishes? Let's start there. Are they like a foot long or something? I mean, if you're going to do the Day of the Dead or a church or something, it can't be three inches long, right? Uh, yes, you're right. You know, Chris, uh, those these radishes, you, you can't chop them up and, uh, and eat them with tacos or pozoles or nothing like that. They're actually grown in a particular way. They can go up to 16, 18 inches oh. because they put so much fertilizer that they can grow at a size that's not normal. And that is exactly what they need because in order to carve, let's say, a facade of Santo Domingo, they obviously need big enough radishes to be able to carve the columns, the niches, the front door, everything. And, you know, they, they have to think about it before they even start carving because once you carve a radish and, you know, you're halfway onto the sculpture, you know, you, there's no turning back. <laughs> so are these all serious artists who do this or these are just you know local folks or it's a mix of people i mean who signs up to do these carvings they're divided in three categories um the first category we know it as infantil which is the kids competition then you have the traditional which are basically the local artists who have gotten involved in this five, 10, 15 years ago, or even more. And then you have what we call Categoria Libre, which is the free category where anyone can go in, you know. So it's pretty much open to the public, anybody that's wanting to do, but you obviously have to sign a few months before because of the prices that they would win at the end. You know, you, you can get up to 30,000 pesos if you really get first place, which is around 1,500 US dollars. You know, in the States, there have been agricultural fairs for a very long time, and carving anthropomorphic images out of vegetables is in almost all of those uh, fairs. Is this something that was also done in Mexico, not just radishes, but the idea of displaying 
uh, figures and scenes made out of vegetables or other things? Well, not necessarily in other places of Mexico. It was something that it was particular to uh, the city of Oaxaca. And that's why even still today, there's no other place in the country that does anything similar to what we do here in Oaxaca. And that's one of the reasons why so many travelers come just to see one of these traditions that we've had for over 100 years. So th- this is in the central square in Oaxaca, this this competition. Are there other things going on at the same time? How long are the lines? Is this, is this just one part of a festival? The lines are pretty long. They can be two, three blocks long. You know, visitors want to go and see every display. I always tell them, look, if you start lining up around one, you're going to go in around 6, 7 p.m. So it's, you know, it's a six, seven hour wait but there are also a lot of things going on in the city at the same time. So we have calendas, which is live music with dancing going on maybe three, four blocks from the square. There's always tricycles that have a big sign, ponche. Ponche, it, what it is, it's a hot drink made out of different fruits. Uh, guava, uh, orange, apple, pineapple, uh, sugarcane, uh, all inside one big pot and they boil it along with cinnamon. So that's something very traditional in the month of December. So there's a lot of cultural activities going on in different areas of the city of Oaxaca, but the main activity is the Night of Radishes. You mentioned that sometimes there are kids who who do the carvings. Uh, Was there one that you remember done by a child that was really great? Yeah, um, I remember in 2019... One of the scenes that caught my attention was this group of boys and girls. They were carving a little bit of their history about their grandparents who had passed away. And one of my clients almost started crying, you know, just the way these kids were deep talking about their ancestors and not only telling it in a verbal way, but also showing it. To me, that was one of the most emblematic scenes that caught my attention, my eyes and my my spirit as well. Gabrielle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, and uh, it's, it's been an honor, and thank you so much. That was Gabriel Sanchez. He's a tour guide in Oaxaca. His website is gabrielsancheztourguide.com. Now it's time to answer some of your holiday baking questions with Cheryl Day. Cheryl is the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also the author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. So, Cheryl, the holidays are confusing, right? I mean, like Thanksgiving's pretty clear. You have your marching orders. <laughs> uh, True. But the holidays, I mean, they're all sorts of different types of holidays and they're different traditions. And in England, for example, they do a turkey, you know, for Christmas. But in terms of the desserts and the baking, it's just all over the place. So do you have something that's, you know, sort of de rigueur, sort of your go-to holiday? Yeah, I do. I go straight to cake. I love a coconut cake. There's something very nostalgic for me to make a coconut cake at Christmas time. Mm, I like So, that. yeah, that's kind of my go-to for sure. And, of course, there's my chocolate cake. That's going to make an appearance on the table. I also make... A boost to Noel. I love to make something festive for my centerpiece. You know, everybody just needs to know that your chocolate cake 
that I watched you make at your bakery a while back is, I mean, there's no point making anything else for your holiday dinner. You should just serve the chocolate cake as the first course, the second course, and the last course. I mean, I could definitely eat it that way, yeah, for sure. I, a big slice. Give me a glass of champagne and a big slice of chocolate Oh, yeah. Cake. Let's do it. All right. Let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. This is Jilda from St. Pete, Florida. Hi, Jilda. How can we help you? Well, I live in a Christian community we're about 3,000 members, and every Christmas especially, we make a lot of cookies, and we land up making a large variety of cookie balls, and we freeze them raw. And something I've been observing over many years now is that there are certain types of cookies that do not do well when they are frozen, and they lose their texture is not a nice texture as when they have been baked fresh. And I was just wondering if there's a process that one needs to do for freezing cookies, what would be your advice? Oh, I love this question. I make a lot of cookies all day, every day myself. And I actually do bake a lot of cookies straight from the freezer. What types of cookies are you having trouble with from the freezer? Mainly chocolate chip cookies and double chocolate chip cookies are more greasy once you've frozen them. I've got some questions because those two do very well at our bakery straight from the freezer. How long are you keeping them in the freezer and how are you wrapping them? Usually we'll roll the balls, and then put them on the tray. They'll probably sit up to two, three months, maybe. I think that's one problem. One other question. Are they sweaty, kind of, when you're before you're putting them in the oven? Is that what you're finding? Um, Sometime, yes. Okay. So let me tell you what I do. I scoop the cookies with, like, an ice cream scoop or weigh them. First of all, we put them on the trays to cool down. We layer them in pans or in a container, a big container that's going to fit in your freezer. And then what you'll do is you'll put all of the balls on the bottom, put a piece of parchment down, and then you'll layer them that way. So that helps keep the moisture out. Okay. And then you're going to want to make sure that those are airtight. I would not keep them for two months. Maybe a month. Then when it's time to bake them, you just simply put them on your baking sheets and bake them straight from the freezer. They're going to take a little bit longer, but that really works great. You can let them come up to temperature a little bit, but not to the point where they're going to be shiny or sticky looking. Maybe, you know, 15 minutes. Another thing is some cookies that you find don't bake well from the freezer, you can bake those cookies and then do the reverse, wrap them and freeze them to save for the holiday season, like sugar cookies and things like that. Okay. Is there any difference between hand rolling a cookie or scooping them with an ice cream scoop? 
I would suggest scooping them with an ice cream scoop or weighing them out. Okay. The more you manipulate a cookie or anything like that, you're going to have the tendency to overwork the dough. And then you'll kind of change the texture of the dough. You don't want to build any gluten and have a tough cookie. Do you have anything to add? I didn't give you much... Chris. Well, I, I know I know when silence is like really a good idea. <laughs> like this call would be one of those because you actually do this every day. So, well, I hope these tips help. They do. Thank you, and I love your show. I listen to it every week. I love it. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a culinary question or dilemma, give us a ring eight five five four two six nine eight four three. That's eight five five four two six. 9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Angela, and I'm calling from Searcy, Arkansas. Hi, Angela. How can we help you? I have a cake question. I know there's a science to the structure of cake, but I'm wondering if you guys have a go-to recipe for a hearty, trustworthy cake, one that you can depend on, one that can easily and willingly adapt to different flavors or add-ins. I've tried this out with a couple of different kinds of cakes, and it has not worked. For example, I have a chocolate crazy cake recipe that calls for vinegar and water in place of dairy. It didn't like peanut butter. And another one was a shortcake recipe, and I added sprinkles to it, and it collapsed. It was thick and gooey in the center cooked but not edible (laughs) so just wondering if you have one in your back pocket that's kind of a fallback from reliability well we've got lots of recipes in our back pocket for sure but baking (laughs) is definitely science so there's a few things you can do for add-ins you know you can add sprinkles to a vanilla cake or chocolate chips something like that but you couldn't add a big fat like peanut butter or You know, you can't just start switching up the recipe because that makes you a recipe developer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you have to be really careful because it's, (laughs) you know, you're messing with science. There's certain things that require alkaline or acid. So, unfortunately, you can't just Mm -hmm. add everything to one particular recipe. Well, I kind of figured that was going to be the answer. (laughs) Chris, unless you've got one. Well, in France, every kid grows up knowing how to make yogurt cake. When you go buy the yogurt in the store, they use the yogurt container as the measuring cup. So the entire recipe is based upon the size of the yogurt container. We got hold of this recipe about a year ago and did it. And it's just a great basic loaf cake. You could easily put in a, a drizzle at the end of orange or lemon or anything you wanted You could add things to it. It's similar to a pound cake, right, if you had a good Mm -hmm. pound cake recipe. It's a good question because then you have a basic cake recipe and you can flavor it any way you want. Almost anyway. Yeah, I mean, you can't throw a cup of peanut butter in (laughs) it. But you could ice it. You could drizzle it. Whatever. I know Cheryl's going like, this is a really bad idea. No, (laughs) it is a great idea. But I think what you should consider, Angela, is – You know, you could do the orange zest. You could do lemon zest. There's certain things that you can do to like a pound cake. You can add a lot of good things to those. Mm -hmm. You could have done like a peanut butter glaze to a chocolate pound cake or 
you know, maybe some other glazes, mm-hmm. but not necessarily inside the cake. Because once you find your back pocket mm-hmm. recipe that you're going to want to make all the time, you don't want to change the texture of it. I think a loaf cake, which is very popular in Europe, is just a really good way to do 20 or 30 different cakes because they're pretty easy to bake. Once you get a basic recipe down, you can finish it any way you want. So that would be my take, loaf cake. And I'm going to go southern pound cake. Okay. But I love a good loaf cake, too. I would start with those because it sounds like you're wanting a recipe, something simple that you can whip together. You may want to know why this strange request came up. Oh, I'd love to. I have a five-year-old neighbor, and he says, my name is Angela, and he calls me Angela. He says, Angela, I love baking with you. And so he comes over, and I never know what kind of cake he's going to want to make. And so this pound cake idea and the loaf cake sounds like a great solution to my problem. I'm going to start trying that. Oh, good. And then you all can just kind of create every time he comes over and make different types with that. Yeah. But no peanut yeah. butter inside. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Thank you guys so much. I enjoyed Thank you, Angela. Thanks, Angela. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Up next, a master class on baking cookies with Rose Levy Berenbaum. That's coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just 
really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with Rose Levy Berenbaum. She's the author of 12 cookbooks, including The Cake Bible, which is now in its 56th printing. Her latest book is The Cookie Bible, which she collaborated on with her husband, Woody Wolston. Rose Levy Berenbaum, it's been so long. Welcome to Milk Street. Do you realize that we have known each other for over 35 years? I was thinking 40, but it's been about 35 Maybe, years. Maybe, because it, it was be the 40. first article I ever wrote was for Cook's Magazine, and nobody else would have considered writing about understanding the Genoise, or understanding anything for that matter, about baking. I, I just want to start at the beginning and say, the Cake Bible is just one of the greatest cookbooks of all time. But I did, I've made fun of you for years because you weigh your baking mm -hmm. powder. Well, I weigh everything. In fact, my editor at Food Arts Magazine said, Rose weighs everything, even air. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about ingredients. So you mentioned in your cookie book that you should use either gold medal or King Arthur all-purpose flour. But isn't King Arthur higher in protein than gold medal? It is indeed. Would that make a difference or not? A slight difference, more so in in perhaps pastry, right. but in cookies, I think cookies are more forgiving. The thing is, though, that unbleached flour actually browns faster, and it has a slightly higher protein content. Right. So the difference between using an all-purpose bleached flour and an unbleached is that the higher protein absorbs more of the liquid, right. and then it doesn't puff as much. It also keeps it from spreading as much. So, I mean, I write about all this in the book because I think people should know what they're choosing and why they're choosing, because some people are religious about unbleached flour. Uh, types of sugar, you call for superfine a lot, as they do in Europe. 
Is there a reason that regular cane sugar is not as good as super fine? Well, when you're making something like Christmas cookies where you want to decorate on top of it, it prevents cracking. You get a a finer crust. And in some cookies, you actually want to have the cracks, which, you know, it's a good thing. But if you want a smoother cookie, that's why I would call for super fine. And especially if you're making something like a macaron, a super fine sugar with meringue, it, um, it dissolves more easily. You get a better texture. European versus American butter, like American butter is 82% fat or something, and Europeans mm-hmm. higher. Uh, the, those butters are very different if you just picked them up and played with them, right? One, one is the European style is much waxier, more solid. Does it make a difference, do you think, in any cookie recipes? A lot of people choose the European because they think higher fat is better, and it isn't necessarily so. You know, it depends on the recipe. Like for a laminated dough, yes, because you have that flexibility of the butter and it doesn't break through the dough package. But with cookies, I don't generally use the high fat at all. Hmm. And a buttercream, yes, because then it emulsifies more easily. Right. But, you know, that don't just assume, I mean, I'm not talking to you, of course, but to your audience, that that because it's more expensive and higher fat that it's better. Um, salt, I'm a huge proponent of salt in all its forms, mm-hmm. especially in sweets or chocolate. Do you feel the same way that salt's really critical to balancing out sweet? Oh, absolutely. But I find it kind of ridiculous that so many recipes in baking used to say kosher salt. And I like to use fine sea salt. Oh, oh, good. We can have an argument now. This is so ah. exciting. Uh, well, <laughs> I knew that would have one somehow. I always use kosher. I don't use table salt for anything or really fine salt. And I just find hmm. that... It dissolves just fine in a batter or whatever, and I've never had a problem with pockets that are saltier. I mean, don't you think kosher salt will – it's just going to dissolve when it hits no, any I kind No, I totally of agree. In fact, it dissolves more easily than even a fine salt. It's designed that way. Then why are you telling me to use fine salt? To measure it because if you're not uh. going to weigh it, and most people don't weigh salt, you're getting a different amount. And I always think to people, if, if you're going to write it in, in a recipe, kosher salt, at least say whether it's diamond or right. Morton. Right, you, you because, have to say diamond because Morton's yeah. very different, yeah. Okay, exactly. well. So we don't totally disagree. So we know I know how to do that, so I have permission. Okay, that's good. Uh-huh. Um, there, there's an ingredient most of us don't have, golden syrup, and you, you call for it in the book. So wh- why golden syrup? Chris, that wouldn't still be in this country if I hadn't given my recipe free of charge to the manufacturer who sold it in this country, Universal Foods. I was so determined to keep it. I didn't want to have to go to London or England just to bring back lots of golden syrup because it has a butterscotch kind of flavor. And when you make it, for example, I have pecan pie cookies or just pecan pie, people often find it cloyingly sweet, but with the golden syrup, it gives it a a lilting quality. And it just seems, it's more than just sweet. It has another element to it. I think it makes a huge difference. So what was the recipe you gave them? Pecan pie. (laughs) And it was on the jar for a long time. I doubt if it still is. Okay, so let's go back to my, the only time I make fun of you is when you weigh your baking powder. So really, I mean, you can't measure a teaspoon. Do you really... I know you can tear the scale, et cetera, but really? I mean, why? Okay, I'm I'm laughing because baking powder is the only powder that I find, or any, if you think of salt, baking soda, these minute qualities that you add in baking, yeah. it's the only thing that never 
measures the same way twice. I mean, you can use a teaspoon, and it would be maybe six grams, or it could be four grams. And so over a period okay. of a year, I measure it each time, and I know the exact weight, which is 4.5. And if you actually, if you sifted it into the spoon, it would be that too. But I'm not going to write sift into the spoon, because people would think I really went off the deep end. So that's why I offer it for people who have a scale that's one of those really small jeweler scales. Some people do have it. I mean, I certainly do. But some people who are really serious bakers want to get something that can measure minute quantities. And baking powder makes a huge difference, maybe not so much in cookies as it matters in, in a cake. You know, when my kids cook occasionally, the question they always ask me is, how do I know when it's done, right? Because that's the hardest thing. But cookies, I think, are really hard because they have to be not set up when you take them out, because there's a lot of additional cooking going on. Mm, good point. So how do you determine whether a simple, let's say, Christmas cookie, sugar cookie, is ready to come out of the oven? Well, when you ask me what some of the essential equipment is in my baking kitchen, mm -hmm. I have to say I used to produce thermometers. And when Thermoworks came up with their Thermopen, right. and now what they call Thermopen 1, 1 means that it'll be one second that it reads, it's actually better than the mercury thermometer because that took a while to get from, right. say, 70 degrees to 110. This is instant. So in some cases, I actually give the temperature reading of the thermometer in a cookie that's really dependent on it. If you have a thin cookie, right, how do you take the temperature of a thin cookie? <laughs> and somebody in the background well, laughing. Cause, cause... Yes, that's my husband. <laughs> Would you like to say why you're laughing? Because Rose knows what she's doing. Excellent answer. Rose knows. <laughs> He's the perfect husband. I'm yeah. telling you. Okay. Well, you see, the thing is that with the Thermopen 1, it has such a tiny little tip that you actually can do a thin cookie. But I don't bother with a thin cookie because you know when it's done. Your first recipe in the book, I think, is chocolate chip cookie. Um, it, ha it had to be. I didn't even want to do a chocolate chip cookie. I thought they've already been perfected. There are enough of them out there. Yeah, well, that's. I was a little surprised, but but you love this recipe, so why is this the best one out there? Well, I do love it now, but what won me over the idea of doing it is that people said, probably the editor, we want to know what your best chocolate chip cookie recipe is. So that's when I revisited it, and I thought about what I really wanted. And a cookie, and I went that extra step to brown the butter. And then I discovered adding the brown milk solids as well. That was one of the things. And then adding golden syrup or corn syrup, and that gives it more of a chewiness. And also, I think mine has less salt and less sugar, definitely less sugar than most, because I started off with the Cake Bible. I found cakes were much too sweet and that you could yeah. get just really excellent results if you used equal weight flour and sugar. And with cookies, of course, you need more sugar, but still you don't need as much as a lot of people think. Okay, oatmeal. I once swore I would never make another oatmeal cookies. I spent 25 <laughs> years of my professional life doing a new one every year. The chewy one, the crispy one. The <laughs> mm -hmm. What's your ideal there, and, and how do you get there? You, do you like them chewy? you like them crispy? you like them big and thick? you like them stuffed full of walnuts and other things? I like a lot of stuff in them, yes, for sure. And my first cookie ever was an oatmeal cookie, and it was on the back of the Quaker's Oat box, and it became one huge cookie because apparently the ratio of ingredients was off, and I gave up baking after that for years. I think I was 17, and I'd just come home from college, and I thought, I'll make an oatmeal cookie. And you, so and you did make one oatmeal cookie. <laughs> Literally, yeah. yeah. But you see, that's why my goal was to make sure that people didn't have that disappointment and stop baking because of it. 
Do you get old-fashioned rolled oats? Yeah, old-fashioned rolled oats, yeah. and then I let the dough sit so that they can absorb some of the liquid. And absorbing the liquid is what makes them chewy so that it's not all crisp. So I, I was looking at some notes before today, and you – I didn't know this. You were hired to work on the Duncan Hines cake mixes. Is that right? Yeah. So what was that like? I mean, you, you, you had this huge conference room full of people. Was it a huge kitchen? What, what was it like? Well, the first time when they tried me out, I was standing there talking, and there were about 12 people, men, standing there listening. But the most important things to say about that experience was that always ask who your audience is, whom you're talking to, because I thought they were just a bunch of guys. When I finally asked after the end, they were all engineers. Hmm. And I always thought engineers were the kind of people who would straighten the picture in the room, even if it was supposed to be at an angle. But when I started working with them, I found that they were on the same wavelength as I was. When people, you know, people come up to me sometime and talk about, do you do you follow recipes? And I say, sure, I follow recipes. I mean, not all the time. Sometimes I do. But you're one of those people where you absolutely have to follow your recipes because you really – it makes such a difference. What do you think about people who, who think that's not cooking? Like you just have to improvise and make stuff up as opposed to actually following a recipe. Well, I think it's a pity if the first time they make it, they do it that way right. and then complain that it didn't work. <laughs> yes, I'm familiar <laughs> and that with happens. that. Yeah. But also the word that I hate in the English dictionary the most when it comes to baking that I hear from people is you know, two words. It starts off with can you, and I always know the next word is going to be substitute. Right. And once when I was doing a class at Gustavus, and I'd invited Marie Gorn Shelley and her husband to see it, and somebody stood up and said, can you substitute something for the banana in the banana cake? And I said, well, why make that cake? There's so many other cakes, you know. But right. but her husband, John Guarnaschelli, piped up in a loud voice, yes, watermelon. And I thought that was the perfect answer because that's the absurdity. Yes, you can substitute, but you have to know what the ingredients consist of and at least mm-hmm. make it the first time with what's recommended. And if it works, then only substitute one thing at a time. There can't be two variables and then expect a conclusion to be at all logical. Rose, uh I, this is ridiculous. We haven't done this in a long time, but really? it's been uh, a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. That was Rose Levy Barenbaum. Her latest book is The Cookie Bible. Rose and I go back a long time together to the 1980s when she published The Cake Bible. It was the first time, I think, that someone had applied a deeply rigorous laboratory approach to baking, an approach I have also pursued throughout my own career. But there are plenty of other approaches to the culinary arts, including the intuitive chef, the throw-it-together chef, the tradition-bound home cook, and the authors who use food as a stepping-off point to tell a good story. And I think the same is true in music. Some musicians have amazing technical skills, yet others rely on soulfulness and songwriting. So, yeah, you can weigh your baking powder, as does Rose Levy Berenbaum, or you can be more freestyle, like Gordon Ramsay or Ida Garden. Nobody really cares how you got there, The food and the music always speak for themselves. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Sam Four about this week's recipe, triple creme cheesecake with guava sauce. Sam, how are you? Doing well, Chris. How about yourself? Good. You know, uh, it was in Mexico City a year or two ago, and, uh, you know, a a lot of the foods you find, especially on the street, are expected uh, but I went, I spent some time with Eduardo Garcia. He has the Maximo Bistro. We cook some beans. But he served for dessert 
a triple cream cheesecake with guava sauce. So I went to Mexico City to get cheesecake recipe. I mean, <laughs> you know, but it was unbelievably fabulous. So how do you make a triple cream cheesecake? You know, a delicious cheesecake should not be limited by geography. And this one is a lot lighter than it really has any right to be because it's got the creaminess of the cheesecake, but it's also nicely toasted on the top. And so for the cheese, uh, you know, obviously most people use cream cheese, mm -hmm. which we do use here, but the, the most cheese is not cream cheese. What is it? It is St. Andre, which is one of my favorite little hunks from the cheese aisle. It is a French triple cream cheese, beautiful texture. It is a stunning cheese with fruit, but in this case, we remove it from its rind and mix it up when it's nice and at like room temperature and gooey, and that kind of creates our base here. And if you're using a lot of fat in this, you want to have a crust that's going to hold up. And so when we made this recipe, we decided to build it back up with all-purpose flour and almond flour, just to kind of add to the texture and add to the richness of it. Now, there's one other thing about this recipe that really intrigued me is there's no water bath. No which water bath. I, cheesecake and water bath is just, you know, tends to leak and it's kind of a pain. Mm -hmm. So after we turn off our oven, we prop the door open and just kind of let the cake hang out in there for about 15 minutes just to pull in that residual heat and finish off cooking without as much intense direct heat. And that's what makes that texture. So we've made lots of cheesecakes at Milk Street. This is the latest and greatest, now our favorite. Light texture, the guava sauce just really, uh, you don't have to use it, but is a really nice compliment. And we learned something about baking cheesecakes, which is you don't need a water bath. Just finish it in a cooling oven. Sam, thank you. Thank you, Chris. You can get the recipe for a triple cream cheesecake with guava sauce at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman creates a miracle after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. 
but that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Cheryl Day and I will be answering a few more of your baking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sally from Louisville, Kentucky. Hi, Sally. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. So how can we help you? Well, I'm calling today about an apple pie recipe that's been in my family several generations. It is kind of an apple crumb pie, or you might call it a Dutch apple pie, or some people maybe apple strudel. And my challenge is making it like my mother did, who's passed away. And it's mainly the topping. I'm asking you about the proportions. Um, my mother's, her topping was kind of hard. I've Googled the recipe, and the first four recipes, they have all different proportions. Two questions. So this is flour, butter, sugar, anything else in the topping? There'd be a half a teaspoon of cinnamon. What about the rough ratios between the three things, sugar, butter, flour? Roughly about a half a cup of dark brown sugar and a couple tablespoons of white sugar, and then maybe three-fourths to a cup of flour. Where I have hard time is with the butter, but I'm using right now, I'm trying like five tablespoons. Two things I would do immediately. I would use white sugar, not brown sugar. If you want a harder topping, because brown sugar is going to be moister and give you a softer topping. Two, I would make sure that you use twice as much flour as sugar. It sounds like your ratio is a little high on the sugar. I reduce that down a little bit. Okay. The other thing you could do is add, you know, chopped nuts or oats or other things. But if you want to stick with that, I would just two parts flour, one part sugar, 
play with the butter. If you want a harder topping, you might use less butter than sugar. This sounds good. I mean, it really is going to come down to personal preference. What I call a streusel doesn't have nuts in it, but the one I prefer on top of a pie personally does have oats in it. And it's a cup of flour, a half a cup of oats, and I do use brown Mm -hmm. sugar. And I use a quarter Mm -hmm. cup, a little bit of salt. I add only about a quarter teaspoon of cardamom or cinnamon, if you prefer. And then I Mm -hmm. drizzle in melted butter, about a stick. And then the other thing that I've started doing recently is I add two tablespoons of whole milk. And what happens... that's interesting. Yeah. And so if you refrigerate that mixture, you know, you get these nice clumps and they really stay when it is on the top of your pie. And to me, it does really add a nice, interesting texture I'm afraid to touch your 100-year-old recipe, but sometimes I think it's nice to give it an update. I have a good idea. Don't listen to anything I said and try Cheryl's <laughs> recipe. Because I actually, you, you, your recipe sounds great because it doesn't have as much sugar in it. It sounds better. Right. Yeah. And that milk mm-hmm. will surprise you. It's really delicious. Mm. I hope that helps. All right. It does help. Yes. I'm going to try it. Sally, thank you. And... Um, I'm sure Cheryl's recipe will solve the problem. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Heidi, and I'm calling from Milford, Massachusetts. Hi, Heidi. How can we help you? Yeah, so I'm calling because I am an avid baker, and as an avid baker, one of my favorite things to do is, of course, try out many different bakeries, some of my favorites being in Boston, especially in the north end of Boston where there's tons of Italian bakeries. So I love to go to modern pastry in the North End, especially for their cannolis, but even more so I love their almond biscotti. And I've been trying to mimic this recipe and perfect it in my home kitchen for a while now. I've gotten somewhat close. It's a biscotti that has a nice shine on the top, and it's not super hard. It has some chew to it still, even when you don't dunk it in your tea or coffee. It almost feels like it has like a macaroon type of texture to it. So it's almonds in it, definitely some orange zest in there. I think some almond flavoring. I've been wondering if there's also some anise flavoring in it as well. I've tried a European recipe that's gotten me pretty close that calls for three-quarter cup superfine sugar, and one and a third cup of all-purpose flour in addition to the baking powder, and two eggs, salt, the almonds, and the zest. But I'm wondering if you have any tips to get that specific chew and that shine. Have you had these, Chris? Well, I've had biscotti that are softer and chewier. I, my first thought would be to get rid of the egg whites, just use the yolks. Oh, Okay. Egg whites tend to make things crispier. Egg yolk obviously is fat, so you could eliminate one white or both whites and just use the yolks. I think that would give you a softer, chewier cookie. Mm-hmm. Cheryl? I agree with that. And then I wonder, in, I mean, I've not tried this delicious-sounding biscotti, but I wonder if there's any almond flour or anything like that in there. But the egg yolks definitely would 
make a difference in the texture for sure. That's a good point because almond flour obviously has no gluten. Right. Which would make a softer product. So if you added a little bit of almond flour to it, that would probably make a softer cookie too. What's the name of the bakery? It's Modern Pastry in the North End of Boston. All right, Chris, we have to go there next time I'm in town. Absolutely. (laughs) Gotta try it out. Well, did you pick up the phone and just call them? No, I'm too nervous. (laughs) Oh, just just call them. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, I'll definitely give that a try. They may not give you the precise recipe, but they probably tell you what they're doing, I would guess. Yeah, if I was going to use some almond flour, the recipe I've been using that's gotten me pretty close is one and a third cups or 165 grams of all-purpose flour. How much almond flour should I add in? I would probably replace a third cup of the all-purpose flour, add the same amount of almond flour, something like that. Okay. Yeah, try that in the egg yolks. Okay. Sounds good. I'll definitely give that a try. And also, this recipe uses no mixer. Would you still say don't use a mixer, just do everything by hand to keep it light? You definitely don't want to overwork the flour. I don't know. I mean, you could use a mixer with a paddle attachment at a very low speed. Yeah, quickly. Yeah, that's fine. Quickly mix. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, this is really helpful. Thank you. Oh, good. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Heidi. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Now it's time for one of my favorite segments. This is our book roundup for this year. I have four books on my list, and I'll start with number four. Tava, Eastern European Baking and Desserts by Irina Torchescu. She's from Romania, but many of the recipes are all across Eastern Europe. Romania is complicated. It's Jewish, Turkish, French, Italian, Saxon, and Hungarian, and the food reflects all those different cultures. Strudels, fritters, cakes, poppy seed crescents, gingerbread, and pies— If you're a little bored with your current baking repertoire, Arena can give you lots of fresh ideas with food that looks as good as it tastes. This is very much like going to a great pastry shop in Bucharest, but it's all in book form. The third book is 101 Thai Dishes You Need to Cook Before You Die by Jet Tila. You probably recognize Jet Tila from television and social media. He was born into the first Thai food family of L.A. with the Bangkok market back in the 1970s and Royal Thai cuisine. He knows all about salty, savory, sour, spicy, and sweet, and he knows how to package it for the North American audience so the recipes will work in your kitchen. Lots of familiar recipes here, Thai omelet, pad Thai, trunka noodles, but this is as much a cooking lesson as well as a cookbook. Highly recommend it. Number two on the list is by Jacques Pépin. Jacques Pépin is the art of the chicken. We all know that Jacques can cook, but he also is a phenomenal illustrator. He makes up hand-drawn menus for his guests at home. He's been doing this for decades, and he assembled all the chicken illustrations into this book, and they are absolutely spectacular. There are also great stories and great recipes, including Danny Kaye's recipe for chicken salad, which he loves, chicken bouillabaisse, vinegar chicken, and even a simple roast chicken with boiled potatoes and salad. Jacques Pépin, the art of the chicken, really is Jacques Pépin at his best, a pairing of art and simplicity. And finally, a dark horse winner for this year's Top Book Award goes to A Waiter in Paris by Edward Chisholm. He shows up from London with his girlfriend in 2011. He's out of work for many months, finally gets a job as a runner at a fancy French restaurant. The only problem is, 
Edward does not speak French. So he gets through the first day without getting fired, and it goes downhill from there. You'll learn about the prep kitchen, the main kitchen, the rivalries between the front of house, the back of house. And by the way, you may never want to eat at a French restaurant again. An excellent read and brilliant writing. A Waiter in Paris by Edward Chisholm. That's our number one book. And those are our four top books of the year. To learn more about my favorite books of the year, you can head to MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Hey, Dan, what's happening? Well, Chris, uh, as a Jewish American, I'm getting ready to celebrate the holiday of Hanukkah. Yeah. And for me, like if I, you say Hanukkah food to me, potato latkes, a little bit of applesauce, a little bit of sour cream. Okay. And, and potato latkes are customary on Hanukkah because they're fried in oil. And oil is at the center of the Hanukkah story. So like the, you may know, the Maccabees thought they only had enough oil to provide light for one night, but instead the oil lasted eight miraculous nights. Right. But in Israel, the traditional Hanukkah treat is actually a different fried delicacy. It's not potato pancakes or latkes. They go with donuts. Really? Yes. Donuts are the most popular treat for Hanukkah in Israel. I didn't know that. They usually do jelly donuts, which I personally don't love jelly donuts because I don't like the big glob of jelly in the center. Unless they're done with uh, this method pioneered by the donut plant in New York, they do a square-filled donut that's still hollow in the center, and they inject thin ribbons of jelly throughout all the lines of the square, which allows for a more even distribution of jelly throughout the jelly donut instead of the giant glob. (laughs) And surface area or something, right? but that's an aside. So jelly donuts aside, I'm all for donuts, and I have been trying to think, how can we combine the American Hanukkah custom and the Israeli Hanukkah custom into one sort of transcontinental Hanukkah feast. We're not going to make potato donuts, are we? No. We're going to create something I call the Hanukkah Miracle Sandwich. (laughs) 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 Okay, go ahead. What is the Hanukkah Miracle Sandwich? I'm so glad you asked, Chris. (laughs) You start with a nice glazed, raised, or yeast donut. Yeah. You slice it in half the long way, like sandwich style. Now, if you really want to get fancy, you can griddle the open halves in butter to toast them and then flip them inside out. Okay. But either way, you spread on the inside of the sandwich applesauce and sour cream, mm-hmm. and you put one big potato pancake in the center. And look, the idea of donut sandwiches is a bit of a trend. In some cases, I think it's been abused. But here, I think it, it works quite well because you have a oily, salty potato latke. You have the tanginess of the sour cream. You have the nice flavor of the apple, which goes so well with sour cream, and the sweetness of the donut. You have a doughiness. You have crunchiness and crispiness. I mean, this it's got all the textures and all the flavors you could ever want. It's almost miraculous. There is something about this which has some appeal. I, I think the sour, the salty, the fried, the sweet— it's, it's it's covering most of the bases here. There you go. I, I think it's one of those things where, like, when you first say it, people laugh and think, oh, you must be joking. But then they start to think more about it, yeah. and then maybe they even taste it, and they're like, oh, this actually isn't quite so crazy after all. Have you experimented at all with other donut sandwiches, Chris? Have you had, like, some people do, like, a burger on a donut? Mm, what are your Lord. thoughts on that? I I can't say them on the radio. Um <laughs> No, wait, look, look, I, I think the donut is one of nature's most perfect foods. The simplicity of the perfect donut is a marvel. So sometimes simplicity is better than complexity. 
I'm with you on that. My, my straight up favorite donut is a glazed buttermilk mm. cake donut. That's yeah. my number one. Yeah. I, I like a good cider, you know, old fashioned cider donut. Right. Especially when you go out and, you know, pick apples or whatever in the fall and they all always have those Rube Goldberg machines that make the donuts, you know. Right. Those. And you I get love a, those. You get a big white bag and they're all grease stained and you Yeah, you see the donuts like floating down the lazy river of oil. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. What donut do you think would pair best with my Hanukkah Miracle sandwich? That's a good question. I would start with the old-fashioned because it's not glazed. Well, maybe you could do apple cider donuts and scrap the applesauce. There you go. That's an excellent idea. I think you you have something here. All right. Apple cider donut, scrap the applesauce, potato latke, sour cream. I think that's a fantastic concoction. Dan, it's going to be the new Hanukkah sandwich. It's it's absolutely going to happen. It's a Hanukkah miracle. It's a Hanukkah miracle. (laughs) Dan Pashman with your wild culinary imagination once again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Happy holidays. That was Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast and inventor of the pasta shape, Cascatelli. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer this holiday season, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to all of our recipes and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and cooking questions, and thanks, as always, for listening, and we wish you a very happy holiday season. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.